Alright, good morning again and, uh, and welcome and good to be here and to be able to bring the word of God and um, praise God that um, you came. Some of you knew that I was preaching and came anyway, which is encouraging. Um, we have a wonderful series that we're still uh, going through here with respect to Romans, the book of Romans in chapter 12. Remember I mentioned with regards to the consistency of the gospel and the consistency of the word of God and how even within this passage there is no change in theme. The theme continues all the way through. It threads itself so wonderfully through this chapter and especially through these verses that we're looking at at the moment. And it's a theme of love without hypocrisy. Um, and I guess you could, you could probably set this as a little mini-series on its own. As, as love without hypocrisy, love that is completely demonstrated and shown. And the passage that we're going to be focusing on this morning is verse 16, and the title of, title of the sermon this morning is actually called The Mind of Christ. Some of you might not see the mind of Christ within here, but it's, a, it's, it's evident that the aspects that it deals with is dealing with the things with respect to the nature of the Lord and how we are to emulate that. We'll read from verse, where we go? We'll have to read from verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honour preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind, one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask, dear Lord, and pray that you would be with me this morning as I bring the word of God to your brethren, to these, dear Father, who love you and who know you and who desire you and who desire more than anything else to be able to grow in the knowledge of Christ. I pray, dear God, that you would help them to see you for who you are and to be determined, dear Lord, to be transformed themselves. I ask you, dear Father, be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's only three, um, three points this morning that I want to bring out. The first is the mind of Christ. The second, the humility of Christ. And the third, the integrity of Christ. The Bible teaches that there is a transformative work being done within us. It teaches that we are being changed from day to day. There is a daily change happening within our lives. Some of those changes happen quickly, some of them take a long time and they don't necessarily take a long time because the Lord's taking a long time they take a long time because we often get in the way but that there is a transformation and there is a transformative work being done is evident in scripture Paul speaks to it in Romans 8:29. he says for whom he did foreknow he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of Christ so every single individual who was foreknown of the Lord in other words determined to be saved by the Lord, would also be transformed into the image of Christ. 
He tells us in chapter 13, Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh. Paul speaks of this change within us, a change that will represent the image of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 49, he says, And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. perfect image of the Lord Jesus Christ within us is not perfectly represented and we see this even evident here in the text. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 Paul writes but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the spirit of the Lord. And just in case you think that this is limited to a spiritual makeup, turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. So keep moving forward. You'll find Philippians. After the book of Ephesians. You should see it there. If it's not there, someone moved it. It's not me that's wrong. All right? Someone moved it. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 20, for our conversation is in heaven from whence we all so look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. This is, this is an ongoing work. There's an ongoing work of the Lord in each one of those who know him. And each and every person who is actually born again, there should be that work becoming evident within their lives. If that work is not becoming evident within their lives, then there's a problem. There's a real problem. If you've been professing and confessing that you're a Christian and you know Christ and there's no change in you, you've really got to ask yourself the question. There has to be a transforming work. There has to be an evident work. And that we find within the scriptures is clearly our responsibility. Though the Lord is doing the work and transforming us, yet we put stumbling stones in the path of that work. We do. We do. One of the things that you find about these texts is that there is no devil made me do it escape clause in the scripture, no matter how often we would want to twist it about. It doesn't appear in the scriptures. And we see certainly no idea of that here in Romans chapter 12. Paul desires simply that we should have the mind of Christ the humility of Christ and the integrity of Christ. As he commands that we be of the same mind one toward another, mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate and be not wise in your own conceits. The mind of Christ, be of the same mind one toward another. One of the most evident aspects of the mind of Christ is demonstrated that we are of the same mind. We are to be of the same mind one toward another. That's what Paul speaks about here. This is unity. This is true unity. That we differ in opinion on matters concerning the truth should actually never be the case. We should all be of the same mind, especially concerning the things that the Scriptures 
teach. We might have different flavours that we personally like. I like vanilla. I think it's the best flavour in the world. I don't think there's any other flavour that actually trumps vanilla. Yet, somebody might say that they like strawberry. You know, I don't know how that can possibly happen. But here we're not talking about flavours. We're not talking about things that are a matter of opinion. We're talking about things that matter, that are true. We're not talking about things that are subjective. We're talking about things that are objective. So our opinions with regards to the things that need to be true should be true. And it should be, therefore, unified. That's the way it's meant to be. We must... um, we must be in, a, in agreement, not simply to agree to disagree. We need to be in agreement. Does that mean that we've got to be forced to agree, even if they don't agree? Well, that's not what the passage actually tells us. Um, how is it then possible? How is it then possible to have all people in, in agreement? Well, let's first agree that the passage commands the same mind, and we'll answer this as we go, okay? I want you to consider something. How can we live in love and hope and joy together if we are diverse of mind one toward another? How can that happen? Can two walk together except they be agreed, says Amos in chapter 3.3. If there is expected to be one group of people more united than anybody else in the world, shouldn't it be those who are part of the body of Christ? We are supposed to be the most united people in the world by far. But what do we see practically? Well, we see even from the beginning that there was a struggle here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 to 13, Paul writes this. And listen to this if you, if you like. Um, now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? Paul identifies something that from the very, very beginning, even Christians weren't united. That one was of Paul and one was of Apollos and they were just agreeing to disagree. Oh, well, that's okay. You're of Apollos. I understand where you're coming from, you know. But they can't agree to disagree. They must agree in perfect unity according to the Scriptures. This is what the text tells us. We need to be of the same mind, one toward another. Paul gives the understanding of how the Christians are to be. When we Christians differ one with another, how are we witnessing the truth of Christ? We don't actually witness the truth of Christ. When we differ one, one from another, we actually blaspheme Christ. Why do we blaspheme him? Because Christ is not divided from the Father. Christ the Father and the Holy Ghost are one and we need to be in that same body and of that same mind. It doesn't happen by concession and it doesn't happen by argument. It happens by trusting that the word of God is true and is simple and is able to be understood in its context. It happens when our minds are as the mind of Christ. When we trust the Lord has the scriptures and we are to humble ourselves as a result. Just as God and the Holy Ghost are one, so are we to be one toward another according to Christ. Turn forward in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15 verse 5. Romans 15 verse 5. The text after the text that actually supports this church in many ways. 
Now, the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that ye may be, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I can imagine as I'm standing there preaching this thing, uh, there's within you saying, "Well, that's that's not going to happen. It's not possible. It's not. It's not. I didn't write it, but you know." I didn't write it. It's the Lord that's actually telling us that this is the case and that's the one thing that we must agree on. So regardless of what you disagree with, with respect to what I'm saying here, understand that we have to agree on this. That's what we come for. That's what we come to listen to. We come to listen to be changed and transformed by the word of God. It's the scripture that's telling us this. We need to be like-minded. We need to be of one mind, speaking with one mouth. If we are not, all that does is demonstrate there's something wrong. There's something wrong. When we are of opposing opinion, what we find is we often honour ourselves and not Christ. Now, what I'm speaking about is trusting the word of God for what it says and for what it teaches plainly. But when there is an opposing opinion, when we get our backs up with regards to something, it's it's ourselves that we're honouring and not honouring Christ. Christ is is not in disunity with the Father. He is of one mind and one heart and joy abounds in that relationship. And this is exactly how it needs to be within the church. When when there is unity within the church, when every brother and every sister in the Lord are of one mind with respect to it, isn't there joy? Isn't there a wonderful blessing in that regard? Isn't there a hope? Isn't there always something to look forward to? I've heard it so often, you know, the Christians in this church saying Sundays are the highlight of my week. And some say Sundays and Wednesday nights are the highlight of my week, you know. And that's such a wonderful blessing and it's so encouraging. And it's encouraging because we're of one mind, we're desiring the Lord with a humble heart, recognising that each one of us can, can fall and can make errors and make mistakes. I evidence that on Wednesday night. But we'll talk about that in a minute. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's vitally important to be of one mind. And that's how relationships bloom and how they prosper and grow. Within the home, the husband and the wife, when they are of one mind, isn't it a blessing in the home? But when they are of diverse opinion and diverse mind, that's where the antagonism comes from. What about the family in the home? Brothers and sisters against one another. It shouldn't be that way. They should be of one mind. Then there is harmony, there is peace. And it's not one condescending with respect to um, just giving up the fight or the argument. That's not the point. Both should be humble enough to trust what the Word of God says as the guiding principle for their entire lives. If there's not that, then it's just a matter of opinion. And I'm sorry, you're both wrong. You know, The truth is what's founded in the Scriptures. And if that's not leading you, if that's not guiding you, then you're not being led by the Lord. Now, we need to be really, really careful here because this is also the overt testimony of the world, is not? Is it not? The world wants unity. The world tells you that they want unity. But one of the incredible things is that we find is that is not going to be their end. We see that in the scriptures. 
we see that the world is going to be unbelievably divided in the last days. Matter of fact, as the days progress towards the coming of the Lord, the world will be more and more and more and more divided. You're going to be seeing it so apparent, and we see it so apparent now with the media around the world, completely driving people apart, bringing in problems that there never was before, seeing things that aren't to be seen in order to drive people apart. Daniel chapter 2 speaks about iron and clay. That's the final kingdom, what the final kingdom is going to look like. Iron and clay don't hold together. Partly strong, partly weak. They cannot combine. They cannot hold together. Won't be unity in the last days, only division. But we are united by the Spirit of God. And that's the only unity that can be found. There cannot be unity at the point of a gun. That's not unity. Okay, that's not unity. Nevertheless, be of one mind is the only way to live in peace. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 says, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace and the God of love and peace shall be with you. That is great. Wonderful to be in one mind. But how? How? How are we practically going to be living in peace? How are we practically going to be of one mind? How do we live in peace if we can't agree on a matter? Well, beloved, the first thing the Bible teaches us is that we are to be childlike. We are to be childlike. Not childish. Childlike. We are to be childlike. The childish person wants it all his or her own way. They see no authority that can override what they want to do. There is no compromise. There is no desire to be of one mind. There is only pride and selfishness. They are not first governed by the scriptures, but they are governed by their own desires based on nothing other than willful, selfish ignorance. We've seen people like that before. They come, they go, sometimes they stay. But they are certainly that way. They don't want anybody or anything overriding what they believe to be true. And we see this even within Christian circles. When we desire to do something, even though the Bible completely clears both by implication, clarifies both by implication and by direct quote what the truth is of a matter that we should be doing, we still want to go our own way and do our own thing. Remember uh, in the book of Jeremiah, remember how... The people had already been taken into captivity. Jeremiah's back at the end of it. The people are suffering as a result because they're under the burden of a, of a foreign king and they desire to go into Egypt. They desire to escape and flee the sword and go to Egypt rather than submit themselves to the king of Babylon. And they say to Jeremiah, go to the Lord for us. Go to the Lord for us and ask of him what we should do and we will obey. Whatever it is, we will obey. But that wasn't what they wanted In their own minds, they already knew what they wanted to do. So if Jeremiah was going to come back with anything that was different from what they wanted to do, they would still do it anyway, you know. And Jeremiah told them. He said, you've already dissembled within your own hearts that you're only going to do what what you want to do. You're going to go to Egypt to escape the sword, but the Lord said the sword is going to follow you there. You're going to go to Egypt because you're going to be able to escape hunger, but hunger is going to follow you there. You are going to be claimed by hunger and by the sword. So you can go, but you're going to die. We can decide to do whatever we want to do because we think it's true, but if it's not true, we're going to suffer the consequences as a result. Having one mind, having the mind of Christ, requires 
humility. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2. Paul writes here. And he says, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. This is a perfect, perfect segue into the next point, which is the humility of Christ. There has to be humility. Not pride. Not pride. Beloved, there has to be humility. Every time you think of yourself more than you ought to think, pride is the overriding emotion that governs you. That's what's going to drive you. You are not ever going to be of one mind. You're not going to be of one mind with your spouse. You're not going to be of one mind with your work colleagues. You're not going to be of one mind with your church family. Matter of fact, you're going to struggle to even be of one mind with yourself. Sounds a little bit irrational, but it's not. I found more often than not, people who set rules for others disobey the rules when it comes to themselves. They set standards for other people to follow, but they themselves rarely, if ever, follow those same rules that they set for other people. There is already within them a disunity. There is already within them a selfish pride. A selfish pride. The only way we can be of the same mind one toward another is to humble ourselves to the plain teaching of the Bible. Guys, in all honesty, if you spend more time listening to sermons than reading the Bible, you're never going to get there. Let me say that again. If you spend more time listening to sermons than reading the Bible, you're never going to get there. You're never going to get there. There are Christians who might listen to sermons all day, but they will simply never find the humility to have the mind of Christ. Turn off the idiot box and read your Bible. Turn off the podcasts and read your Bible. Get rid of all your other reading material for at least a year and read the Bible. Do yourself a favour. Read the Bible and pray and pray. Just a a note on the preachers that many people listen to every day. If those who you listen to do not make you feel ashamed at not perfectly living for Christ then switch them off. You're not going to grow. If all they do is give you information that is helpful, if that's all that they do and they never convict you for not living for Christ, switch them off. You're never going to grow. There's some preachers that I listen to and every time I listen to them, I break my heart because it convicts me of my own shortcomings. And I love it. I love it because it changes me. It changes me. It helps me continually remind me that, you know, it, it, it just brings you back to earth because you think of yourself too often so much higher than you ought to think. If their preaching does not humble you enough to see how wretched you are before a holy God and make you fall on your knees 
saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You're going to find yourself soon separating from those who do. It's God who draws brethren together, but only those who are not puffed up in their own minds. We are to be childlike, not childish. The humility of Christ, the humility of Christ. Be of the same mind one toward another. (coughs) Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Mind not high things, he writes. It's not the loftiness of the mind, but the lowliness of the heart that makes the difference. You've heard the old saying that people don't care how much you know, but desire to know how much you care. That's absolutely true. That is absolutely true. It's not what's within your mind. Your mind can be filled with a thousand pieces of useless information, yet you will not save a single soul. But a heart filled with compassion and love and pity for the state of the lost will save a soul from hell. We've already seen this spoken about in the text just before us. You know, this loving care that distributes to the necessity of saints, the selfless love that blesses them which persecute you and that weeps for them that weep, that there's no inconsistency to follow with respect to the humility of Christ to mind not high things but to condescend to men of low estate. It's interesting to see this sort of humility play out in the Scriptures. James spoke to have no regard for the man with the gay clothing. That's when gay used to mean happy. Happy clothing, the, the bright clothing. To be as Christ and be without respect of persons. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. You know, past the book of Hebrews, you should find James. If you get to Peter, you've gone too far. James chapter 2. And have a look what he says with respect to an an indication of humility here. He says in verse 1, James 2 verse 1, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons? For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, And say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place. And say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you, and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? It's interesting. It's interesting to see that it's not the status of the purse, but the status of the heart that is of value when we emulate the, uh, the, the humility of Christ, when we represent the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. The same problems that plague churches today when we have rich men walking into the church and all of a sudden we think, ooh, tides are going to go up, you know? Oh, just sit here, sit here, stay here, you know. And we have a regard to them. We don't know what their heart's like. We don't know what covetousness has gone before them. And yet we disregard those who are poor in material possessions but so rich in faith. And they're the ones that I want to have around me every day of the week. 
There is to be a humility of Christ and it needs to be evident within them. Jesus is recorded in Luke 14 saying, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honourable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and had come and, and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou will begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee come, he may say to thee, Friend, go up higher, then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Notice there's no ifs, buts or maybes in Jesus' words there. Those that exalt themselves shall be abased, and those that would humble themselves will be exalted. Certainly shall. We are not to mind high things, but instead we are to represent the humility of Christ and condescend to men of low estate. It's the image of, it's Jesus who we need to be like. It's Jesus who we are meant to be like. We are meant to be like Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm personally sickened by, by the popes of this world. I'm sickened by the archbishops and the bishops and the Creflo Dollars and the Benny Hins and the, and the Kenneth Copelands. I'm, I'm sickened by the Joel Osteens and that that perverse this upside-down world and bring a complete covetousness into the hearts of people rather than humility. And see Jesus flying around in a jet plane looking all pretty and swish. You don't see him flaunting about everything. He didn't even have a pillow to rest his head. And yet these people seem, they seek to emulate Christ and then they transfer that idea onto their congregations and the congregations then lust after covetousness and not after Christ. Rather than condescend to men of low estate as Christ did, these covetous malcontents run greedily after the heir of Balaam. Turn your bulbs to Second Peter. Second Peter. Peter describes these individuals. It's incredible how well it's also represented in Jude, the last book of the Bible. Oh, the second last book of the Bible, sorry. Second Peter. Second Peter chapter two. To go past James, you should get to Peter. Second Peter chapter two before the epistles of John. 2 Peter chapter 2, have a look at how Peter... We want to be nice, you know, we don't want to be too rough with these individuals and yet you read Peter. Peter chapter 2 verse 12. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumbass speaking with man's voice, forbade the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. 
For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein, and overcome the latter end is worse than is worse with them than the beginning. For it has been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is returned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Beloved, this is the risk. This is the risk. This is the risk of the soul that minds high things. This is the risk. Either you are going to be deceiving or either you are going to be deceived into covetousness and start minding high things or you are going to be a deceiver of those who would otherwise follow after Christ. You would receive the wages of unrighteousness according to the scriptures because why? Turning again to your own vomit. But I want you to consider to yourself the humility of Christ. The Bible says that we are to condescend to men of low estate. We are to bring ourselves down to men of low estate, to the poor, to the needy. We are to even be their servants, the scripture says. You know, We are to condescend to them. Now I want you to consider Christ for a minute. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We were there before. Let me read for you. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1 simply says there, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfil ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How can it be? How can it be that God himself would be willing to condescend to men of low estate? But you and I might not. How far was God willing to humble himself from the height that no one can be higher, yet we won't get off our pedestal for men of low estate? Notice how perfectly this passage meets with our own passage in Romans chapter 12. You see how well it fits? I love the Bible. I love how well it just fits together so perfectly. There's no contradiction in the text. On the contrary, it wonderfully expounds what is already before our eyes. 
We are to represent the humility of Jesus Christ, beloved. That's how we are to be. We are to represent his humility, to humble ourselves for all people, not to glorify ourselves, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Jesus had the right to do it, but didn't. We have no such right, yet do it often. (laughs) How amazing is that? Doesn't that make you feel like, you know, how amazing is that? God had the right to exalt himself. We don't. You know, he didn't do it, and yet we do it often. Last point this morning is the integrity of Christ. The integrity of Christ. Be of the same mind one toward another, mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. There is a level of self-delusion that follows pride. A level of thinking higher of yourself than you ought to think. But more than this, a desire that others would think more of you than you than is actually fitting. So your desire is not only to think higher than you ought to think about yourselves, but your desire is to also think, to also have other people think more highly of you than should than they should. We just read in Romans 12:3, for I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. There needs to be integrity in every aspect of our lives, but most importantly, not to be wise in our own conceits, not to be wise in our own self-deception or our own pride, not to boast of ourselves falsely. We need to be honest with respect to ourselves. We need to have integrity in every part of our lives. In other words, we cannot be puffed up even with a false knowledge, either of ourselves or of the circumstances that are around us or of the scripture without being proven otherwise. We are living in a day and age where we truly think that we know what's going on, but we don't. We don't know what's going on. We're living in an age and a time that is absolutely filled with deception, just as Jesus said would come. Remember, every record of him being asked, what will be the sign of your coming? The first response that we see written there is, be not deceived. We are living in the time of that sign. We are living in the time of that sign. But for some strange reasons, we on the conservative side think that the information that we gain from the world is true because it fits our particular agenda or it scratches us where we're itching. And the only ones that are deceitful are the ones on the left. That's not the case, beloved. That's not the case. That's not the case in Scripture. And that's not the case that we find. Paul wrote of this self-conceit when he addressed us in Romans chapter 11. I want to show you that I'm not, I'm not off the mark here at all with regards to moving in this direction. Have a look at Romans chapter 11. Turn there with me. Romans chapter 11 and verse 25. It links perfectly with our text that we're talking about and links perfectly with regards to this self-conceited wisdom. Romans 11.25 For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel 
until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Why was Paul addressing the Romans in this way? Paul was addressing the Romans in this way because they falsely believed that God was through with Israel. He addresses that in the very first verse. He says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. Yet, wise in their own conceits, they were deceived to believe a lie. And they became wise in their own conceits. Got it? You see the link there? We believe a lie, then all of a sudden we become wise in our own conceits. We don't recognise that that's what we're doing. But we've made a choice to believe a lie, we've become wise in our own conceits. This is happening today in tremendous measure. But for some reason, it's conservative Christians that believe that false news is only occurring from one direction. So they pass on, they propagate information that they themselves have not checked I've dealt with this before, I've dealt with this. I've dealt with this with a pastor not long ago. And I'll tell you the story about that in a moment. I've titled this portion The Integrity of Christ because we are to never be self-conceited. We are to never be self-conceited. We are to think soberly and godly in Christ. We are to have the integrity of Christ and not to be wise in our own conceits. But to do so requires Two things, two things. It requires us to be humble, it requires humility, and it requires fear. It requires fear. Humility not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, and fear not to blaspheme the name of Christ by both believing and propagating error. I want to give you one example of being wise in our own conceits and how dangerous it is, and there could be... Millions of different such examples. But I'm going to move here. In 2016, a conservative-driven campaign became serious news when a man was arrested for for a shooting incident in a Washington pizza shop on December 4th in what became known simply as Pizzagate. Yes, Pizzagate. The theory was propagated by a leaked email told of a child trafficking ring run by the Clinton Foundation including both pedophilia as well as, believe it or not, child sacrifice by Satanists. A man went to the store with a rifle to investigate whether this child-friendly pizza store called Comet Ping Pong were housing children in its basement. The most tragic portion is that this one unproven conspiracy was painted all painted all conservative concerns about that which is evident in the world as conspiracy theorists. So everybody that's on the conservative side of the equation, beloved, that's that's our side, right? All now painted as conspiracy theorists, this overlooking all the massive obvious deceptions that's on the left through the media. When you are tarnished with just one case of false information, your integrity is shot. But sadly, thanks to the efforts of QAnon and the mix of both provable and unprovable information that stems from them, division and doubt rises around the world until a call for controlled information comes for us all. This is what's going to happen. When we... Don't vet the information that comes our way. And when I say vet the information, I'm not necessarily just talking about truthfulness. I'm talking about value, whether it has any value to us at all, whether it changes anything. There's an individual that said once a long time ago about gossip. It says if 
To be able to identify gossip, it's really, really simple. If you're not part of the solution nor part of the problem, it's gossip. Do you like that? I like that. If you're not part of the solution or part of the problem, it's gossip. Somebody else referred to it as passing on stolen goods. And that's exactly what we do, beloved. When we have a lie come across our, our desk or our phones or whether it's in the mail or whether it's in the news, we have a lie that comes through that we don't check, that we don't vet, that we don't know whether or not that's actually true and then we pass it on, you're handling stolen goods. You're passing on stolen goods. We are to have the integrity of Christ. As a, as a pastor, I have such a fearful obligation to make sure that I check the information that I receive. I am so frightened about passing on something that is probably wrong, that I have not checked. Even the quotes that I have in books, I need to go to original sources to check. I have to check the original sources. I had, I had books, I tried to find a way of how I can actually do this and then I found a way. That, um, that I can actually check all original sources that actually come my way, even ancient sources. So I check those ancient sources and make sure that, they, that somebody, yes, they, somebody said that. And not only just check, this, check the context of the information to make sure that even though I'm itching in every way that this is true, I still have to check it. I want it to be true because it's exactly what I want to be able to present a perfect quotation for example but I need to make sure that it is true, that the person did say that and it wasn't taken out of context and there's been heaps of them in the middle of last year I received an error from a conservative pastor, an email, sorry it was an error but it was an email an email from a conservative pastor a man of great reputation in independent Baptist circles he sent what seemed to be a testimony of a doctor in Italy who had been overwhelmed with the dying and disease that he was treating through this virus. But what struck this doctor, according to the letter, were the Christians and how they were so different respecting death. So different that he came to Christ and became a believer. How encouraging is that? Wouldn't that be wonderful if it were true? Wouldn't it be wonderful if that letter was... 100% true. Does, doesn't it, doesn't it, isn't that exactly where we come from as Christians? Wouldn't we want that to be true? Wouldn't that be good to be able to encourage other Christians? Yeah, but there was something about the letter. I'm reading the letter. And as I'm reading the letter, there was something about it that just, it didn't sit right. I read the letter. This is the testimony of the doctor. I'm thinking, well, this is only a couple of months after this had all begun. And there's a lot of Christianese in there. Christianese, just for def- Christianese is a language that occurs to Christians when they've been long in the faith. Right? When they've been there for a long time, we talk a certain way. There's something that we all recognise, one with another, as, as the, what the Bible permeates our hearts. We start speaking that way a lot of the time. There was a lot of Christianese in there. And I'm thinking, that doesn't, that doesn't fit. It doesn't fit an individual who was recently saved. There was something about it that wasn't right. So my little antenna sparked up and I decided to do five minutes Five minutes it took me to do a research into where this came from. Well, I discovered where it came from. It was, turns out that it was a letter posted on a person's Facebook page who quotes his source as another writer. But when I went to that writer, 
He quotes his source as the guy on the Facebook page. You got that? So the guy on the Facebook page quotes this other guy who actually quotes him. There was no original source. Beloved, if there is any doubt, even if it scratches you where you're itching, if, even if it, it lines up with the things that you currently believe, if there is the limited, if there is just any doubt, let it go. Let it go. Just, just delete it, pass it on. The believing, and now I asked the pastor for proof of where his original source was straight after I got the email. So immediately, so just in case you think you're the only ones I tell off when it comes to this sort of stuff, you're not. All right? I'm not afraid to tell pastors as well. I asked the pastor where his original source was. Where did he get this information from? I asked him that before I did the research. I thought he could tell me. But he didn't tell me, so I did the research. And, uh, and he never responded. Never responded. So this is a current piece of information. You've already seen an ancient piece of information where Christians were passing on or believing they were wise in their own conceits, believing false information concerning the nature of the Jews. Let's talk about a historical one in the epistle dedicatory of the KJV, the King James Bible. This is 400 years ago. And listen to this. This is coming from the actual translators themselves. This is their dedication to King James with regards to it. And have a look what they say. It says, so that if on the one side we shall be traduced by popish persons at home or abroad, who therefore will malign us because we are poor instruments to make God's holy truth to be yet more and more known unto the people, whom they desire still to keep in ignorance and darkness, or if on the other side we shall be maligned by self-conceited brethren who run their own ways and give liking unto nothing but that which is framed by themselves and hammered on their own anvil, that we may be that we may rest secure, supported within by the truth and innocency of a good conscience, having walked the ways of simplicity and integrity as before the Lord. What they were saying was we're going to be we're going to be maligned by the Popish people, the people the, from Roman Catholicism for creating this translation of the Bible, who would rather keep their people in ignorance, but we're also going to be maligned by self-conceited brethren. Brethren who are on our side, who only hold to that which they bang about on their own anvil. They create on their own, they create for themselves. This is pride, this is self-conceit, this is being wise in your own eyes. Each piece of evidence, whether those are wise in their own eyes that I've given to the ancient times of Paul, even 400 years ago, to modern times, are all Christian and conservative deceptions believed and passed on. Where is the purposeful dedication to the integrity of Christ? We have to emulate the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to. We have to be as the Lord is. We have to have a mind that doesn't believe our own self-deluded ideas of ourselves. This is speaking about humility. It doesn't take long to slip into self-conceit. And I'm going to give you the last example. One oversight and you're there. Just ignoring one contradiction, one time, and then there's a slippery slope into becoming wise in your own conceits. When's the Bible study? We looked at chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. I went on a wonderful study of the nature of a given item in the text. Or at least I thought it was in the text. I was really, really excited 
to preach about it because what I preached about was true. I taught it, it was true. And I got really excited and I expanded on it. It was great. But then as I concluded the verse, two words popped out at me to make me realise that it was not true for this passage. Two words. There were two words that gave me the context that I actually had to stop. Why did I stop? Why didn't I just ignore it and move on? I dedicated a lot of passion to teaching this, you know, and it was true and it was good and it was right. I mean, I could have ignored it, could have just moved on. Nobody would have really noticed necessarily, maybe, hopefully. Not if I'm teaching this church properly, they would have pulled me up on it. Unless my, my wife does. But I had, you see, I had an, op- an offer was made to me right there and then. Right there and then, an offer was made. Eddie, it's a nice, you're going to have fun going down this slippery slope. You're going to have fun to be now wise in your own conceits. You know, I mean, mate, come on, seriously, you just dedicated all this time teaching this and it was really good and it was true, but just not for this passage. That's okay, isn't it? It's not that big a deal, is it? You know, just just ignore it and move on. Nobody will notice. And besides, what about your own pride? You're going to look like an idiot. You know, I rejected the offer. I rejected the offer. And I went back. And I said, it was a mistake. The context told the truth of the passage. I could either slip down that slope and reject the opportunity or I could either slip down that slope or reject the opportunity to malign the integrity of Christ. I couldn't malign the integrity of Christ because he is my saviour and I hold his word far above my own integrity and my own vanity. It's him that needs to be upheld and not what would come across as a perceived contradiction in the scriptures. It's his integrity that I stand by. Every time I have information that I need to pass on to another individual, it's his integrity that I'm aligned. It's his integrity. I represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I don't do so properly, I blaspheme his holy name. I have no right to do so. P.S. I made two mistakes that night. You're going to have to come to Bible study on Wednesday night for me to tell you the other one. All right? Good. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Above all things, this passage teaches that humility, teaches of humility and our willingness to humble ourselves. That we would have the same mind toward another, to not mind high things, to condescend to men of low estate and especially not to be wise in our own conceits. It is a picture of Christ. It demonstrates the mind of Christ, the humility of Christ, and the integrity of Christ. And this is where we are to be. This is humility. When we learn to compare ourselves to Christ, the Lord, our Saviour. Beloved, we learn about him in the Bible, and we learn about ourselves in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word of God. We thank you for its integrity and what it teaches us. We thank you, dear Lord, that we can come to the knowledge of our Saviour. 
that we can bless you and praise you. And we ask you, dear God, that you would inspire within each one of us a humility that would be willing, dear Lord, to humble ourselves, that perhaps one day we might be exalted. We thank you, Father, for this. We know that it's a serious lesson for each one of us, and I pray, Father, that you would bless us with the truth of it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.